My Uncle Joe, who was 11 or 12 years older than my dad, was born in 1921. He told me once about an incredible adventure that he had when he was about 14 or 15 years old, which would have been in the mid-1930s in the midst of the Great Depression. So here's the story. Brace yourselves, helicopter parents. My dad's family lived in Buffalo, New York. My uncle Joe, again aged 14 or 15, and a friend had a hankering to visit New York City one summer. Not for any particular reason, just to tool around to go to a Yankees game, Radio City Music Hall, and to visit the Statue of Liberty, that sort of stuff. So my uncle and his buddy saved up their paper route money, and they took off on their bicycles. It's close to a 500-mile trip each way through the mountains of upstate New York and northern Pennsylvania. And they weren't riding fancy, lightweight road bikes with 18 gears like you can get today either. They were on those big, heavy, single-gear, paperboy-style bikes that all the kids had back then. My uncle said that on some of the long downhills in the mountains of Pennsylvania, they picked up so much speed that their foot brakes didn't work. So they literally had to use their actual foot as a brake, dragging the sole of their shoe along the pavement in order to slow down. And I said, Uncle Joe, where did you sleep? Did you stay at motels or, or campgrounds or something along the way? And he said, no, we wanted to save our money for New York City. So what you could do back then is if you were passing through a small town, you could go to the jail and the sheriff would let you stay in a cell if there was room. Sometimes he would even give us breakfast with the inmates before we took off in the morning. And then he said, actually, we probably deserve to be in jail. And I said, how so? And he said that there were a lot of roadside farmers markets that they passed. And most of the time when the farmers left for the day, they would just cover up their stuff with tarps. So my uncle and his friend would wait until nightfall, and they, then they would pilfer fruits and vegetables to their heart's content. Well, they got to the Big Apple successfully, and they stayed for a few days and saw all the highlights of the city. One hitch was when my uncle's bike was stolen from the YMCA where they were staying, and he had to use his last few bucks to buy a rusty old clunker for the return trip to Buffalo, which slowed them up considerably and cut into his traveling budget. But eventually, they made it back home in one piece. So I was listening to this story in a kind of disbelief that a teenager did something like this on his own in the 1930s. And then it finally occurred to me to ask, what did grandma and grandpa think about you doing this? And he shrugged and he said, well, they didn't want me to go. He said, your grandpa was in tears as I left the house. And I said, did they think you were running away or something like that? And he said, no, no, they were just worried about me. They thought it was stupid. And worried, I mean, it sounds, you know, it seems kind of like an understatement. Today, a lot of parents worry if their kid doesn't reply to a text message within the hour. Back in 1935, my uncle couldn't have called home if he'd wanted to, as my, fam my dad's family didn't even have a phone yet. From the perspective of our day and age, it's hard to imagine the kind of anxiety that my grandparents would have felt while my uncle was gone. Their only assurance that he was safe would have come when they saw him physically pedaling back up the driveway. When we hear the parable of the prodigal son, we are apt to focus primarily on the experience of the son. Probably everyone can relate to some way to his hubris and his rebellion in seeking his share of the inheritance early. We can imagine his youthful irresponsibility in frittering away the money on a life of dissipation, then hitting rock bottom and tending to the swineherds.
Only at that point, motivated perhaps more by self-preservation than by genuine repentance, he resolves to return to his father in supplication. But imagine, if you will, the experience of the father. Here's his son asking for his share of the inheritance, which, if you think about it, is essentially like him saying to his father, I wish you were dead, especially when he combines that with setting out for a distant land. He's saying, I don't want to be with you anymore. I reject you and this home that you have built here. The father must have recognized that what his son was doing, what his son was doing was stupid and would come to no good. But he equally recognized that his son was too old to rule by force. He had to be allowed to the freedom to have the freedom to make his own choices in life. Probably my grandfather felt the same way about my uncle's bike trip. You could argue with his judgment in allowing a 14 or 15 year old to make that choice, but certainly that was his mindset. He felt that my uncle had to be free to make his own mistakes. God is the same way with us. He creates us and he sustains us. He even tries to influence us, but he gives us freedom precisely because he loves us, because we need to experience freedom so that ultimately we can become saints. To love God is a choice. We cannot love by coercion. Indeed, this is probably why in this life God remains mostly hidden or cloaked from us and our tangible senses most of the time, why he allows the operation of his grace in this world to be shielded by a certain amount of ambiguity, because to manifest himself too readily would overwhelm our hearts and minds. Awe at his presence would probably engender mere subordination rather than genuine love. Even those who were privileged to see Christ in the flesh during his earthly life were given only small miracles to glimpse, which, as incredible as they might seem to us, were only tiny hints of God's infinite power. Yet in giving us freedom, God does not love us any less. Indeed, he loves us more, precisely in that he is, will that he is willing to experience the indignity of our rejection of him so that we can learn to stand on our own two feet. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus tells us that as the young boy approached the farmstead while he was still a long way off, his father caught sight of him and was filled with compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The father was already waiting for the son to return. We can imagine him each day looking down the road, hoping against hope that his son was coming back. We can imagine the anxiety that he felt with each passing day heightened perhaps as he heard reports of the famine, the famine ravishing the land that his son might have boasted that he was journeying to. When we sin, when we walk away from God, he doesn't experience anxiety in the human sense, which is a product of the limitation of our knowledge. But obviously he's aware that his love is going out unreturned. Despite his respect for our free choices, God is not passive when we sin. He's constantly casting out his grace in order to reach us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That doesn't end. His love for us means that he never gives up. He's never unwilling to forgive. Like the father racing out to meet the son before he's even apologized, God is giving us, each of us, the grace to ask for forgiveness. It's not uncommon for a person to break down in tears in a confessional. That might be expected when someone unloads a particularly grave sin that has been troubling them. 
But it also happens not infrequently with a penitent who confesses the smallest, most venial litany of sins. Perhaps such a person is just emotional in general, but I suspect what's more likely is that they see the confessional for what it's properly meant to be. Too often, perhaps, we can treat the confessional like a courtroom, where testimony of sin is received and a verdict of guilt pronounced. But in reality, confession is God's son or daughter receiving that first embrace of God's love as they return. It's a reunion where God's grace meets our free choice to love him once again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.